Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. And we're back. Welcome to another episode of The Flow Line. I'm here with my wonderful co-host, Matt Offenbacher. Matt, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right. It's Monday. I'm, yeah. I'm awake. <laughs> That's right. And then hopefully you got to enjoy some nice weather this weekend. It was beautiful. I sure did. Outside a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. And, you know, of course, it wouldn't be a regular Flowline episode without talking a little bit about baseball. And I don't know if the last time we recorded, they were out of the lockout, but now they are. And it's, you know, full swing. I was started getting alerts on my SportsCenter app, you know, preseasons kicked off. Yeah. So anyway, I'm sure you're excited. But one thing I noticed is they haven't been playing really any of their starters it's been just a lot of bench folks playing right now. And so anyway, are you excited for what's going on right now? I mean, the fact we're going to have baseball is pretty huge. It was really disappointing how long that took for really unclear reasons why it took that long to <laughs> yeah. still, you know, agree to disagree and move on. But that's what happens when there's a lot of money at stake, I guess. That is so true. But anyway, it'll be fun and lots to look forward to. Do you think they're going to be, I mean... Do you think they're going to be fairly good this year or what's sort of the vibe on the street? I mean, if you look at the statistics, the Astros will still be in war, like third best in the league. I mean, okay. it's, they're still going to be pretty good, but like the AL West got a lot better, like the Mariners. But I'm more worried about like two and three years down the road with what they have than this year. Yeah. But I don't know. In another way, I think maybe a more competitive division will be good for them just because they seem to slump so much. Right. When it matters. So a little yeah. bit. Yeah. No, a little bit of competition never hurts. Well, anyway, moving on to the old mud world here, a topic that really came up. And, you know, one of the customers is looking at doing some different technology. And of course, this sort of spurred a conversation that we're going to have today. And that's talking about, you know, when and, and how to effectively minimize mud weight through fluid selection. And, you know, again, a lot of conversation around that. A lot of debate, controversy, depending on, oh, this works for this, this works for that. But hopefully we can clear the air a little bit today and perhaps answer some questions or generate some new questions. So what do you think, Matt? Sounds good to me. Awesome. So I guess to start off with, you know, as you're drilling along, you want to maximize mud weight for well control and obviously keep the hole open. But, you know, why would you want to lower the mud weight? Well, there's two. I mean, we'll kind of... but. The primary one is losses, right? So I know I don't have poor pressure, maybe depleted area, what have you, but basically we need to get as light as possible so we're not losing fluid while we're drilling. And that's where a lot of this conversation centers around. And it could even tie into things like underbalanced drilling where it's like, I want to be lighter than my poor pressure. I'll, you know, I have equipment to divert the well at surface. So how light can I get the fluid? And most of the time, this is sort of the balance of you know, equipment and a fluid technology. Right. So I thought it would be good to, to run through just because there's a lot of technologies out there, but everybody sort of has to either choose their least worst option or, you know, kind of pick one and, and see if it's going to work. Most definitely. So if someone comes to you and, and wants a, a system that'll essentially, you know, be extremely light or lighter than what you could use with the conventional system you're using, what is the first system that comes to mind? So the first one I have on the list is an all oil system. And, you know, we've done a separate podcast episode on this. So I'd draw people's attention to that if they want to know more, but thinking about hundred percent base fluid. So 
your internal phase is going to be heavier than your base oil. So what if you don't have an internal phase? Right. You could get, you know, with a synthetic oil, you might be able to get six and a half pounds per gallon. Diesel, you get about seven pounds per gallon. There's obviously some concerns with like flammability and stuff at surface. Mm. And as we discussed in those particular, in that episode, it's an oil wet environment. So you're probably not going to have a hundred percent oil system. You're going to have like a 95.5 because you're going to pick up some water. Right. You're going to have oil wetting agent, emulsifier. And so it makes for a very, very lightweight system. You know, there is a lot of cost involved though. Right. So it's not just hundred percent base oil is very expensive, which it is. But even the concentration of additives, for example, to get viscosity, to get products to yield, it just requires more of some things if you were hoping to have fluid loss control or, you know, those kinds of things. So all oil system is sort of the first on the list, but it's normally the first one ruled out. <laughs> yeah, she's pricey, especially nowadays. Well, you know, we got another one here that we're familiar with, and I'd say we're one that we use, and I think we're the best at it. What is it, Matt? That'd be a direct emulsion. And so, you know... Direct emulsion systems, it's, you know, as opposed to an invert emulsion where the water is in the non-continuous phase, the water's in the continuous phase and disperse oil droplets throughout the system. So now you've effectively lightened fresh water with oil. And for the most part, a direct emulsion, your oil water ratio is going to be 50-50 is kind of pushing it. So you might get about, you know, seven and a half pounds per gallon. But in that case, you also have half of that being oil, which... The whole premise of this is most of the time you're trying to avoid losses. So if you lose anything, you're taking a risk of it being quite expensive. So direct emulsion, very, very common, used in a lot of brownfield type stuff. In a lot of the you know stuff, case histories in Mexico and the Middle East and Russia, what you find is they'll try this and then over time sort of give up on it because the losses persist and it's just too expensive to lose fluid with that much oil in kind of a low cost environment. Right. No, that makes sense. And there's other ones too. And this is more, you know, mechanically changing the system. Matt, talk about aeration fluids. So this is basically just continually adding bubbles. And so you gas cut the fluid, you could probably get it down to five or six pounds per gallon, but this requires equipment because you basically need an internal string to continually introduce gas down hole to lower the hydrostatic pressure. Keep in mind that, you know, bubbles shrink under compression. So you need to introduce a lot of them. It's usually going to be nitrogen to address some of the risks of corrosion and that sort of thing. I've actually been on rigs where we did this with KCL. And so you'd aerate it, but the challenge was the cost of the hardware of all this equipment being out there, special compression units, all that stuff. But you also lose fluid at connections because when you make up your connections, at least with, you know, there may be another circulating system out there, you've got to shut it off, right. which means you go back to conventional hydrostatic pressure. You start to see some losses, fill up the hole while you're, you know, screw the pipe back together, start adding your gas. So it minimizes losses, but in a lot of environments, it might not eliminate them completely. Right. And with aerated fluids, it's typically from my experience, and this is going back a few years now up to Pennsylvania, but it's typically just water and a few products. It's not like you're drilling with a super high dollar system, at least up there. But I do know, I think it's in either Wamsutter or Parachute around there in Wyoming. They use a polymer system where they aerate it. But I guess you could aerate any system, right? Or yeah, there's an argument. So, I mean, it sort of ties into talking about air foam 
drilling, which was kind of this, let's just blend them together because we're sort of talking about the same thing. Sure. And this one, it may be that you don't actually have like a hole full of KCL. It might be, as you're suggesting, just air Um, (laughs) with some inhibitors or, you know, some sort of filming, you know, you make some bubbles, whatever. And those work great, but you have to break it over to something if you encounter a water influx, for example. Mm. So most of the time, like when you talk about your experience in PA, it's hilly. You're well above the water table in many places. So you could drill your surface or intermediate with air really fast, get the hole clean. But if you encounter water, you have to mud up. In other areas, the water table is much higher and you've got to come up with something different. But air or foam is sort of out if you encounter water aeration or aerating the fluid, you have a full column. You're just adding bubbles to it. That's so right. either way, we're cutting it with gas to make it lighter so that we don't lose it. Gotcha. What about things that you can add or products that you can add to lighten the fluid column? So this was big a few years ago, or I don't know if big is the right word, but instead of glass beads, adding hollow glass spheres. So the gas is trapped inside a, you know, effectively a permanent shell of glass so that these fluid, you know, they have an equivalent of less than one specific gravity, like 0.38, 0.4. And because of that, you blend those into the fluid and you can lighten it up quite a bit. Mm. So they're designed to have a very high crust strength, you know, get you down to five to seven pounds per gallon. I think the original push was when kind of the newer generation of underbalanced drilling was out. And sort of saying, look, we can do this fairly cheaply by just throwing some beads in there or hollow glass spheres. I don't think they're necessarily all that cheap. You don't hear about them as much, which would lead me to believe that cost was an issue. Yeah. It goes to a lot of this. When you read the papers, a lot of them are very academic, although there are a few successful case histories. So, you know, yeah, if you don't want to, you know, add the bubbles, get the bubbles put in in a factory and then, (laughs) you know throw them in as particles. Right. And so with those, I mean, just from the application, I've never used those. I'm not sure if you've been on rig with it, but is it just as simple as kind of throwing them through the hopper or do they have like a conveyor type of deal? Or are you familiar with that? So, I mean, normally you add them through the hopper and then it's like the same thing as bead recovery, where the idea is that you should have a better recovery efficiency because these are so light. Right. Where you'd put it through some hydrocyclones and hopefully, you know, you keep this stuff and throw out the solids. Makes sense. So, you know, and you can get pretty high concentration before they really affect your rheology or anything. Yeah. Sort of. So that's another option to try and lighten the column with a circulating fluid. Right. So what are some of the issues that we could possibly encounter or need to consider if we're going to lighten up the hydrostatic? I mean, the first one is obviously cost. So all of these have more cost than drilling with water, for example, right? And a lot of times in these sort of loss-prone areas, cost is a very sensitive subject. You're not going to add a bunch of new equipment or anything like that. And so if we're introducing a more expensive fluid or a more expensive process, we've got to get paid back for that somehow, whether it's better productivity, whether it's, you know, safer well delivery, better cement jobs, whatever it is. But the whole purpose of all this was to stop losses, which means you have the risk of losses, which means you risk losing your expensive fluid you use to try and stop losses, right? (laughs) Yeah. No, that's a good point. And I would say too is anytime, I mean, granted, if you're concerned about losses, I mean, there are some cases where you may have a different sort of profile when it comes to frac gradients or even pore pressure gradients. So if you lighten it too much, you could obviously risk well control as well. So hopefully 
the engineers that have designed these wells have an understanding of their gradients and, and what formations could possibly come back at you too. Because you lighten Absolutely. it too much, obviously, you don't want to come in back because then you get in this situation where you're losing and you're taking on fluid or gas at the same time, which in West Texas is common. But if you're doing this in other areas, it's something to be mindful of. Absolutely. And then the other part of it is there's a lot of these exhibits of, oh, hey, I was able to make a seven and a half pound per gallon fluid in the lab. And it's like, okay, well now run it because you're going to get drilled solids. How much can you handle? What is 5% by volume drilled solids? When you're trying to keep a seven pound per gallon fluid, seven and a half pound per gallon fluid, I mean, the contrast is even worse. So you've got to be way more aggressive with your solids control. You risk more dilution volume, which contributes to cost. And so in those narrower margins, you have to figure out what a realistic working fluid is. Right. Because it's probably not going to be what you're able to make in the lab. It's going to be something with some drilled solids in it where you say, I can handle this, but on a mass balance perspective, I don't want to go any higher. Right. No, that makes sense. Anything else? I mean, obviously, well, before we go on to other options, I mean, is there anything else? I mean, there's obviously costs involved with, like we talked about different special equipment, anything else with lighting the hydrostatic or anything we need to think about there? I feel like there may be one or two, but I had something on top of my head. Now I can't think of it. Well, I mean, I think going back to your point on sort of like the influx question, right? Like Mm -hmm. what if I have my expensive fluid that I now need to wait up or, you know, just different scenarios like that, along with the risk of contaminants you might encounter, you know, if you get comfortable because you're adding gas to a fluid, what happens if you also bring gas in? You know what I mean? Like it becomes a bit more of a dynamic environment with some of this equipment. Granted, there are procedures and that equipment normally has extra safeguards, but I think there's a lot of reasons why it's not so prevalent. Sure. However, I would say, especially in the workover market, what we've found is there's a lot of folks who are very anxious to get away from nitrogen and get away from the, because it's so expensive. And so they're like, what's the magic? And what we find is all of these have trade-offs. So yes, the equipment is expensive, but it, you know, it works. Some of these other things may be a solution, but you might not like the sticker price relative to what you're doing right now. Sure. And you got to change your procedures. Yeah. No, that's a good point. And, you know, there might be folks out there saying, wait, there's one that you forgot. And I'll let Matt describe perhaps other options that are not a good application for this. Matt, why don't you go ahead and uh, mention those? Well, just because you serve this up on a platter, I'll go ahead and say, you know, if you've listened to anything, any other episode, perhaps... Afrons do not appreciably lower your hydrostatic column. The bubbles get smaller under pressure. It is a lost circulation material. It is not designed to actually reduce the column. Those bubbles that surface, it may look like a lot of air, but when they go down hole, they're not. And so it's almost like these are all your options. And then this is the one that I think a lot of people sell it as that, but it isn't. You know, however, with respect to your options, I think one of them that most people end up with when we start having these conversations about these fluids is learning to accept the losses. Unfortunately, it's definitely not anyone's, you know, preference, but they weigh the economics and they realize, you know, if I could do this with something that I can get relatively cheaply, it's going to be much cheaper than trying to introduce all these other things to manage it in a low cost environment. Sure. But- I do want to take everybody back to, you know, best practices, right? Like, so fluids are one of the options, but they're not like the top of the list in the same way that if you have losses, 
treating losses is sort of the last thing you do. You want to prevent losses first, right? And so from that perspective, you know, think about your drilling practice and your engineering. Is there something that I can do differently? You know, that might be a place to start. So you say, hey, can, do I have tripping practices? Is there something I can run on narrower margin with a conventional fluid? Yeah. Then, you know, well, we're strengthening, which we've talked about in previous podcasts where I actually squeeze some material, strengthen up the weak part, and hopefully that, you know, addresses it. Yeah. Treating the losses. Maybe you develop some new practices and techniques where you say, once I get above a certain loss rate, it's worth treating with X. And then, you know, nobody likes this one, but I'll go ahead and mention it just because worst comes to worst, maybe you do need to run a contingency liner or extra casing. It's very, very expensive. It's a matter of last resort but it exists as something that may be a practical option in a difficult situation. Yeah. And especially in the environment that we're in right now, obviously casing just in itself is hard to come by. So, yeah. you know, anyone hearing that's like, oh no, there's no way we got to do that. But, you know, ultimately it's either drill it or you don't. And, and if you really, if you're in a position where you can't have losses for whatever reason, then obviously, you know, last resort is redesigning your well and adding a string of casing in there. But you no, know, it's something that, you know, a lot of times too, if you want to lighten your mud weight, a lot of times get your solids down and run the centrifuge and dilute. But obviously there's situations where you just simply have no solids in the system and, you know, you have no barite and everything else. And so, yeah, you have to come up with these different applications or different options to get, you know, through that specific zone. But I would, again, you know, encourage anyone that, you know, if you are going to be drilling wells where you do need to lighten hydroside or use something kind of unique to really do your planning, do your research and just understand sort of the limitations behind some of these and understand too, like if, like we've talked about it, you know, if you're lightening everything up and you're trying to avoid losses, well, you know, mother nature can play its toll and all of a sudden you got to wait it up. So, you know, kind of run through your different scenarios. If we, you know, if we have to wait up, what are our options have maybe something on standby at the warehouse just in case. And, and so it can, you know, everyone has a plan until the plan doesn't work. And then you got to figure out plan B, C or D. So. Yeah, and, and I'll add one other thing I left off here, you know, things like dual gradient drilling and, you know, mm. riserless mud recovery and that sort of thing. It's not that I'm unaware of them. I feel like they'd be better suited in a different capacity, but sure. pretending like, okay, well, I'll just leave the backside with a lighter fluid or whatever. Yeah. It matters knowing what your fluid heights are to get, you know, hydrostatic pressure and, you know, yeah. all that critical stuff. So I left it out because I feel like it sort of is another thing on its own, but I will acknowledge it exists for the purpose of anybody out there who says, well, you didn't mention them all, Matt. <laughs> I'll say, well, I didn't. I mentioned <laughs> many, but not all. Right, right. I mean, those are kind of unique applications, which I think could be a total, you know, just another great episode is talking about maybe some of the unconventional ways we can lighten the hydrostatic. And, you know, again, there's been things, again, you go to West Texas and they do things a little different. I never drilled with mud caps or, you know, drilled with, you know, a lighter fluid on the backside and you're pumping some away. And there's a lot of options out there, some of which have been developed by accident, which again, you know, perhaps another, you know, another topic for another day is just sort of some other very unique ways that we can adjust fluid column density and everything else. But with that said, if anyone has any questions or they'd like to add to the list, of course, hit us up on LinkedIn. There's definitely some folks out there that, you know, like to engage and question, you know, some of the stuff that we've brought to the table, which is great. It creates good conversation. Matt, anything else before we let everyone go for the day? No, I think we're good. Awesome. Well, thanks everyone. If you can hit us up at the flow line 
podcast at aesfluids.com. If not there, again, LinkedIn is where we spend a lot of our time on social media. Take care for now. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.